0: The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP critical care peer and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, two of the most recently released episodes, they've been rapid reactions, right? Focusing on three landmark trials within neurocritical care, Interact 3, Timeless, and Optimal BP. So if you haven't listened to those, Put them on your list. It's absolutely fantastic uh, info talking about these new trials and considerations. But to help wrap everything up, uh, we're closing out with a two-part series on blood pressure control in neurologic emergencies with Andy Webb, neurocritical care pharmacist in Massachusetts. Uh, These are fantastic episodes. I mean, Andy leaves clinical pearls and tips and tricks throughout the episode, like Hansel and Gretel leave breadcrumbs in the famous fairy tale. Uh, This will be a two-part series. So, Part one, this episode, is going to focus on the disease states themselves, blood pressure goals, landmark trials, considerations for us, and then part two, we'll dive deeper into the specific antihypertensive agents, considerations, when to use, when not to use, etc. So, an awesome series, excited for everyone to hear. Now, let's get into today's episode, Blood Pressure Control in Neurologic Emergencies, part one. And here with me now is Andy Webb. Now, Andy is the neurocritical care clinical pharmacist at Massachusetts General Hospital and the creator of NeuroWise, a website he uh, started to share deep dives and thoughts on pharmacotherapy in neurocritical care. You can find him on Twitter at Farm. Andy, thanks for joining me today. How are you?
1: Not too bad. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Nick.
0: So, channeling my love for 90s hip-hop, you have lived on both the East and West Coast, right? Oregon and Massachusetts. So, help us settle the decades-old question that um, people have literally been murdered over. Which is the best coast?
1: Oh, man. I mean, there's no great answers. No perfect (laughs) answer. I mean, the East Coast is in my blood. That's where I was born and raised. That's where I was kind of originated from, but... There is something magical about the West Coast that even now that I'm back on the East Coast, there's still part of me that misses it. So there's a little bit of that mystery, that mystique of the West Coast might might just have a little bit of an edge over the East Coast. I'm not going to lie.
0: That was you're going to be a, pol- you were a politician in a future life or a past life. Cause that was such a good answering both sides of the question. I, I won't, we won't, we won't pry anymore. Um, in the words of biggie, yeah, I got to choose the East. I'm, I'm the East coast guy, So, but I get the West. It's it, the Pacific ocean is just a little too cold for me.
1: Um, yeah. You know, I feel that, but there's some sort of something different about the gravitational pull at the Pacific ocean. That it just, I think it ties me over. Yeah.
0: Now, the real reason that everyone is here today right blood pressure control in neurologic emergencies and we'd we'd be remiss to not hit at least one or two kind of background pathoquist questions and the first one I want to start with is What's kind of the the mechanism behind why appropriate blood pressure control and blood pressure goals are so important in neurologic emergencies? Why we emphasize these goals in these patient populations maybe more than others?
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think this is a perfect question to start with cuz I think Neurocritical care, especially, almost everything that we do in the unit is backed by understanding the pathophysiology that's going on with the patient, and blood pressure is the perfect example, right? So I think when we think about blood pressure control in the neuroICU and neurocritically ill patients, there's kind of like two major concepts at play, and one is one that we're probably all fairly familiar with, and that's cerebral autoregulation. So the concept that, broadly speaking, in a healthy population, your brain is, pretty good at maintaining a steady cerebral blood flow, regardless of what your systemic pressure is. So in a normal, healthy brain, at the extremes of blood pressure, your brain has the capacity to kind of change some of the vascular parameters to ensure that there's a consistent supply of blood flow, regardless of the changes in systemic blood pressure. But during neurologic illness, oftentimes those mechanisms get damaged And cerebral blood flow becomes essentially dependent on pressure. Your systemic pressures are going to directly kind of translate to whatever the cerebral blood flow is. And the second concept is that really blood pressure is just a surrogate for blood flow, right? So pressure and flow are proportional, but especially in neurologic illness in the setting of say, you know, atherosclerotic vessels, if there's turbulent flow in the blood vessels, you know, pressure is going to be basically variably related to flow. And so really tightly controlling blood pressure is our best guess of ensuring adequate blood flow and, you know, therefore adequate perfusion of the brain tissue. And so I think that like one thing that's also important to recognize here is that high blood pressures or elevated kind of abnormal blood pressures, are sometimes thought of as like the cause of neurologic emergencies, particularly intracranial hemorrhage, right? I think we've all seen those patients who come into the ED with blood pressures in the 250s. I've seen 300. And it's oftentimes thought that like that is what caused the bleed, or that's kind of the direct inciting cause of the neurologic emergency. And more often, it's actually really the symptom of the problem where the neurologic control of blood pressure, where you have your baroreceptors in your aorta, that's, you know, uh, assessing different changes of pressures in the vascular system that travels up your spinal cord into your brainstem. And there are structures within the brainstem that can then modulate a blood pressure at the systemic level as well as blood flow within the brain. And when you have substantial damage to some cortical structure, oftentimes a compensatory response to that damage is changing systemic blood pressures. And so one of the main reasons that we are so intent about changing blood pressures in the setting of a neurologic emergency is, A, there's probably something pathologic going on where the brain is kind of trying its best to maintain perfusion, but may overshoot the target. We want to avoid causing secondary damage, uh, but also we want to ensure that we're still supplying enough blood to the brain where oxygen is being delivered to the right areas. We're not worsening any potential ischemia. and We're also not worsening any potential edema that may cause secondary damage to kind of otherwise healthy uh, kind of brain structures.
0: That's an important point you make, kind of similar to to how I, I sometimes think of, like, AFib and the critically ill, the same thing that elevated blood pressure can be a consequence of those emergencies, right? And so just like, but unfortunately, we think of them a little differently, that we we can't just let our blood pressure hang out in the 190s like we sometimes will with our heart rates in AFib there. So mm-hmm. um, a, a good point there. Now, thinking about the different types of strokes, right, breaking down the the two biggest categories, right, ischemic and hemorrhagic. And so... But we we manage them differently. Right. Because generally we let pressure run high in ischemic and we try to make it lower in hemorrhagic. Right. We've all been in the ER where you you have the stroke one that you have. You have tenectoplase place ready. But then you're like, oh, no, get the nicardipine. Right. There's a huge bleed. Right. So why? Why is that? Why is there such kind of a, a difference in the management uh, between those two?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that those two kind of diverging concepts is actually somewhat new in terms of how we approach blood pressure in these two patient populations. So, you know, 20, 30 years ago, uh, there was not nearly as much emphasis on like tight, low blood pressure control and and intracerebral hemorrhage in particular. And so I think like the concepts at the base level are very similar in that, you know, in both ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke, cerebral autoregulation, like we talked about, is disordered. And so cerebral blood flow is going to be kind of proportional to systemic, systemic pressures, where how much blood that's getting delivered to the brain, how much oxygen that's being delivered to the brain is going to be directly proportional to your systemic pressures. However, in, you know, ischemic stroke, that makes a lot of sense where, you know, you have an ischemic injury because there's kind of a blockage of blood flow to whatever area is being occluded. And what we can try to do is optimize how much cerebral blood flow there is by allowing systemic pressures to go high. The brain is asking for additional blood pressure to get more, you know, oxygen to that area. And so we're not going to be quite as aggressive in lowering blood pressure in that setting because, you know, if somebody's systolic blood pressure is 180, 185 after an ischemic stroke. We kind of believe that that's what the brain is asking for, for adequate perfusion. And generally speaking, while that concept remains true in hemorrhagic stroke, they, there's the additional consequence in hemorrhagic stroke where if systolic blood pressures rates again go really high, uh, and systolic blood pressures generally reflect kind of like the sheer force against the vessel. There's a chance that those high pressures will then actually worsen the hemorrhagic injury. And hematoma expansion remains our kind of primary uh, target for reducing or improving functional outcomes. And elevated systolic pressures may end up worsening hematoma expansion, which is probably in the end game going to be worse overall. And so, you know, the the general concepts of kind of like cerebral hemodynamic failure where, you know, stage one, you have like a loss of the cerebral autoregulation curve and we want to let pressures run run high so the brain gets more oxygen. That's really important to maintain an ischemic injury so that we can prevent the cells from trying to like draw all the oxygen they possibly can from the blood and then end up dying from ischemia. In hemorrhagic stroke, we care a little bit more about uh, preventing worsening of that index hematoma which that we believe to be the strongest thing that's linked to worsening functional outcomes. So that has kind of driven the separation in how we approach blood pressure, where, yeah, we need perfusion in both settings, but we believe that the worsening of hematoma expansion in ICH is probably going to outweigh the benefits of just slightly letting the pressures run high. So
0: as, as Andy and I were preparing for this episode, we realized that this could be a, a six-hour episode if we included all possible neurocritical care patient populations, right? So um, we, we decided to focus on two big ones, which is acute ischemic stroke and spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage. So let's start with acute ischemic stroke, and we'll kind of do, uh, start with patients receiving thrombolysis, and then we'll kind of make our way through the pathway. Now, uh, if you follow Andy on Twitter, uh, number one, if you don't, gave the handle out earlier please do but he's a certified literature deep diver and which what i mean is that right like if there's a question he's gonna go down rabbit holes i love doing that too right you 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 pull an article you look at a reference of a reference of a reference i think there's a funny thing right you 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 posted something where it was just a picture of a bunch of formulas you're like i think i may have dug too deep (laughs) So so I want to ask you a question of something that I've wondered and I can't get great information on when I've tried to look. So why is there a slight difference in your blood pressure goal pre thrombolysis and then immediately post thrombolysis? So I've always assumed it was to bring the pressure down just a bit since she kind of increased the hemorrhagic risk, probably more than just a little bit. But an assumption is exactly what that is.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that this is one of those questions that I've also tried to go down those rabbit holes on. And I think ultimately, the numbers that are chosen are probably picked out of thin air to a certain extent, although I'm sure there is some intentional decision made. But essentially, the bottom line is that blood pressure as a modifiable risk factor for hemorrhagic uh, conversion after ischemic stroke has been known for a long time. So the, the history of thrombolysis and stroke is really fascinating. It like, dates back to the 1950s when angiography was first being done, and they were like, oh, we're seeing these clots that are probably what are causing stroke. And like, only if we had a drug that could bust up those clots. And over decades, once CTs were invented, and they could actually see, they're like, oh, maybe if we do too good of a job at this, patients can bleed. Uh, You know, we got a little bit better year by year at selecting the patients who are ultimately the most likely to benefit from thrombolysis and the least likely to be harmed by thrombolysis. And pretty early on, it was identified that like blood pressure is probably a modifiable risk factor for hemorrhagic conversion. And so essentially every major study that has looked at thrombolysis in acute ischemic stroke has included some general blood pressure parameter that is either an exclusion criteria to receiving the therapy or is kind of a modifiable risk factor once they've actually received the therapy. Interestingly, the only studies that have not done that are the streptokinase trials that have looked at, you know, streptokinase and ischemic stroke, which some people may not even know that there are a number of large yeah. clinical trials that looked at this, like the MASS-I, MASS-E, and AS trials, which all failed miserably because streptokinase is such a dirty thrombolytic and has so many systemic side effects. But in any case, for better or for worse, we have this streptokinase data with patients who had extremely elevated blood pressure that, at, at the administration of streptokinase. And there's essentially like an exponential curve where the higher your blood pressure is pre-administration, uh, the higher your risk of hemorrhagic conversion is. Not super surprising. And so a lot of the early studies with alteplase and some of the alteplase congeners like duteplase had various kind of exclusion criteria, oftentimes, interestingly, over 200 over 110 was a common number in the early trials. And ultimately, through the refining that, those studies and refining the criteria of which we select patients, uh, 185 over 110 was selected as the inclusion, ex- uh, you know, the inclusion The exclusion criteria for getting the drug. And then I think to your exact point, they're just a little bit concerned about conversion right after administration, so they dropped that by five points. I've looked for the exact paper that kind of picked out that five as the number, but I have a feeling that it's just kind of a remnant of the original protocol, right? So there's a lot of things that the original NINDS trial did that have still informed practice today And that like maybe should not inform practice just because it's just a trial protocol and they're just doing their best. So like one interesting thing is like we all get 24-hour head CTs on our patients who get a thrombolytic. And that was just what the protocol did. And so there's some data that's coming out that says like in most patients, you might not even need to do that. As long as you wait 24 hours, you kind of give the, the thrombolytic a period of time to work. You probably can safely administer aspirin or whatever you need to do after that. But I think that the blood pressure parameters kind of fall into that category of we're just following how they studied it. And as time goes by, we'll probably end up maybe relaxing that. But in any case, the blood pressure parameter is definitely one of the more like, strongly believed to be real contraindications to thrombolytics, or like survey studies have said that, you know, most stroke physicians would not give a thrombolytic to a patient whose blood pressure you cannot control with medication. And so whatever number we end up choosing, it, it's clearly something that a lot of people really believe is a modifiable risk factor for hemorrhagic conversion.
0: Yeah. And it's when you, when we dive into literature and when you listen to this, right, this can be the time we spend the least amount of time, the, the, the piece we spend the least amount of time on. Cause you're right. The data is the, the most clear with it. Now, my one question that I've had, right, because, um, you talked about how the blood pressure and acute ischemic stroke that your body, your brain may need that, right. That might be the natural kind of, um, adaptation to what's happening. So, when you're giving a antihypertensive to bring down your blood pressure to meet that goal, do those patients, like, do we know if anyone has worse outcomes if you required antihypertensive therapy versus not, um, and how that, like, affects our outcomes in stroke?
1: Yeah, and so this is something that the original NANDS trial investigators were interested in as well, and so there's a, a great post hoc analysis of the trial published in 1998, um, that essentially looked at the difference in outcomes between patients who did or did not get uh, antihypertensives pre-administration of alteplase, as well as after alteplase. And so pre-administration, interestingly, there were really not that many patients who needed antihypertensive therapy, which is kind of surprising. Uh, and so 11 of the 56 patients who were hypertensive prior to TPA administration were, that were treated with medications, the difference in functional outcomes were actually not different, whether or not they were given medications before the administration of ultaplates. So if they came to the hospital, were screened for enrollment, were enrolled, and their blood pressure was, you know, 200 over 110, they got a dose of labetalol that brought their blood pressure down a little bit, they did just as well as the patient whose blood pressure went down to 185 spontaneously on their own. But interestingly, when they looked at patients who got antitemperative after ultaplates administration, there's actually a fairly substantial effect size of worse functional outcomes, where they looked at the good chunk of patients who got antihypertensives after alteplase to bring their blood pressure down a little bit further, and patients tended to have worse functional outcomes at three months. Now, the authors of the post hoc analysis were like very cautious in their interpretation of this, where they're like, there's no way for us to adjust whether or not it was just sicker patients who needed an antihypertensives. This is not what the trial was kind of intending on looking at, so you should, you should not take this as a reason to not give antihypertensives to patients who've gotten alteplase and it's it's with good reason because this finding has never been replicated so there's a really big um registry study from the sysmos registry with about eleven thousand patients that showed that there was really no difference in outcomes in patients who do or do not receive uh, antihypertensives after the administration of thrombolytics and obviously the enchanted trial which is a trial that was specifically looking at aggressive antihypertensive therapy to lower blood pressure to less than 140 after ischemic stroke also did not find any change in outcomes. so if that finding from the original NINDS trial of post-administration antihypertensive therapy was true, the ENCHANTED trial would have shown a bunch of harm, which it didn't. And so the bottom line is that it doesn't seem that antihypertensive therapy specifically, either before the administration of a thrombolytic or after administration of a thrombolytic, has a substantial effect on outcomes. And so really, it's just modifying that risk of hemorrhagic conversion is the major role of those therapies. And interestingly, like not all hemorrhagic conversion is created equal, right? So there's some studies that have looked at like the original ECAS trial that like, you know, little bits of petechial hemorrhage probably actually are associated with like successful reperfusion and do not translate to worse functional outcomes. And so there's like a lot of variables that go into what ultimately is going to say whether or not a patient has a good outcome. And luckily, blood pressure agents don't seem to be a major contributor.
0: So let's go from a topic that is clear, crisp. It's like the Fiji water bottle, like the image on the front. (laughs) Um, And let's go to uh, let's go to blood pressure post thrombectomy, which is like muddy waters. We're we're in the Mississippi here. And so um, I'm knocking on all the wood here, if you can't tell, but if you underwent thrombectomy and you got to set your own blood pressure goal range because you know any all of us that are in the hospital right we're all going to be micromanagers um what would what range would you ideally choose do you have a range that you would choose
1: yeah I mean I say first if I have the capacity to set my own blood pressure goal after thrombectomy I'm doing pretty good but (laughs) I think that like it's so hard to say right so like exactly what you said right now we're it's so unclear about what the best thing to do for these patients is. And I think that like for a long time, it was believed that blood pressure was like the last little knob that we could turn to really try to optimize the outcomes of patients who got thrombectomy. You know, over the years, we've gotten better at patient selection. We've gotten, you know, the proceduralists lists have gotten better at actually performing thrombectomies. Rates of excellent reperfusion have gone up, but the outcomes are just very slowly getting better. And we thought like, oh, maybe blood pressure would be that one thing that could be our ticket to really improve the patient outcomes after thrombectomy. And while a lot of observational data were suggesting, you know, that like perfect little U-shaped curve where there's this nice little window between maybe 120 to 160 or 120 to 140 systolic, that was the the magic number. As we'll talk about in a moment, that has like essentially been completely thrown out the window. And so I think that there are a lot of variables that come into play here. And as you're kind of thinking about selecting optimal blood pressure targets, I think obviously the first thing to think about is what the degree of reperfusion is. And so the, the TICI scale, which is the scale that's used to grade how successful a thrombectomy was, that ranges all the way from zero to three. Uh, Tiki 01 as well as TICI 2A is generally believed to be poor or incomplete reperfusion. And in those patients, probably just letting them autoregulate to whatever their brain wants is going to be the best thing to do. So if you have incomplete or partial kind of retrieval of the clot without great capillary refill after the procedure. Just allowing the brain to select and auto-regulate what systolic it wants is probably not harmful and may end up improving some of the collateral perfusion of that area. You know, in, outside of the thrombectomy population, there's at least some data that shows, especially in patients with, you know, some collateral, at least poor collateral flow and maybe a critically stenotic vessel, higher blood pressures may end up saving some of, like, uh, tissue at risk. And so just letting blood pressures do whatever they want in those patients is probably the best thing. But it gets a lot muddier once you enter the excellent reperfusion period, which is TIKI-2B, TIKI-2C, as well as TIKI-3. Uh, and these are where these trials are really trying to select what the best number is. And I think ultimately what we've found is there is just not a best number for everyone. And so I think broadly speaking, I think most patients will probably do well around a systolic of 160-ish, but that's kind of like a big generalization that can't be applied to everyone. And so looking at, you know, how big the stroke is, what their collaterals look like on angio, what their blood pressure is at baseline, whether or not they were on like a bunch of antihypertensives at baseline are all going to be variables that we're going to start to include in our decision-making about what the individual numbers are. I think as trials come out, essentially we're learning there's only one thing that you really shouldn't do and that's drive patients' blood pressures really low because that has now, as we'll talk about in a moment, been shown to cause quite a bit of harm.
0: And the guidelines recommend what in terms of blood pressure goals?
1: Yeah, so the actual stroke guidelines are pretty vague. They essentially follow standard thrombolytic recommendations where if you get good reperfusion, it is reasonable to keep blood pressures less than 180, which I think is like generally helpful, especially because most of these patients uh, you know, have received a thrombolytic anyway. And so essentially the guidelines just defer to whatever, like the the most risky intervention they got were. And it, it's tough because, you know, a lot of the trial protocols have varying recommendations and varying protocols. So it's hard to extrapolate one trial's outcomes to another based on how blood pressure was managed.
0: And for those familiar with the um, stroke guidelines, right, they have the the boxes with the recommend. They have the the grades with the recommendations. And then underneath, they have some some text, um, kind of like context with it. And you know, one thing that that stands out is. In that box, they only really reference one study that talks about intensive blood pressure control. Most of the others, it's greater than 150 or less than 180. And that's the DAWN protocol, right, where they, the the DAWN trial where they targeted less than 140 in those first um, 24 hours. So what does the, what does the most recent evidence show us? Because you mentioned it's helped clear some things up and it has. So how, how has it done that for us?
1: Yeah. So the DON protocol, as well as a couple of other thrombectomy trials, had specific blood pressure control parameters in their protocol. So DON suggested or recommended keeping systolic blood pressures less than 140 and excellent reperfusion. Uh, The Bayos trial, which is one of the recently published trials for basilar thrombectomy, also had a less than 140 recommendation. Then Reviscat, which is another one of the thrombectomy trials, had less than 160 with excellent reperfusion. But most of the other trials didn't say anything in their trial protocol about blood pressure control. So the big trials like Mr. Clean, Extend IA, and more recent ones like Attention, they have nothing in the protocol if you dig through their supplementary appendix about blood pressure control whatsoever. And so I think like from a thrombectomy trial's perspective, the recommendations essentially are just going to default to whether or not the patient got a thrombolytic. And then you just follow the thrombolytic blood pressure control uh, kind of guideline of keeping them less than 180 over 105. Uh, and as we'll talk about in a moment, there have been a couple of other randomized control trials now specifically looking at whether or not the targets of blood pressure are modifiable risk factor for outcomes. Uh and they've kind of changed some of our thinking. Cause you know, I think like prior to the most recent randomized control trials that have been published, you know, a lot of observational data suggested that keeping patients less than 140 or somewhere around those lines was the thing to do. So, you know, there are registry trials, including like thousands of patients who got thrombectomy that almost very clearly showed that there was this U-shaped curve where really, really low blood pressures, like a systolic less than 100, were associated with worse functional outcomes. Not super surprising. They're probably not being adequately perfused. But then blood pressures, even just as high as above 140 or 160, in these registry studies, were associated with higher rates of reperfusion injury and potentially worse functional outcomes. And so, if you were to believe these like, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of patients' registry studies, like 140 to 160 seems like the perfect target. Um, but essentially, it's, you can only adjust for baseline covariates to some like the to, to nth degree in these observational studies. And it's really hard to say whether or not the patients who just landed in that 140 to 160 range, that was just the best perfusion parameter for their individual brain. <clears throat> and these studies really were not designed to say like, well, now this is definitely a modifiable risk factor that we can target at therapy too. Uh, so until, that's essentially where-
0: But then up until when, that was the best evidence we had though, correct? Up yeah, until you get right. into these newer studies, these large registry studies that did, that controlled for everything they could, that was the right. best evidence that we had to go on, right? So it's not like they were necessarily ignoring things because those studies you're mentioning- Mr. Like, these are big studies that had no mention of it. And so that's the only thing I want to, before we get into these other studies, that's the only thing I want to make clear to the listeners is like, it's not like there's, there's a study that we ignored the, that they they ignored the outcomes of. It's more that it kind of shows the limitations of registry studies in a pretty big way with all these randomized trials that we'll get into.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think it it also highlights just like stroke patients overall, it it is not a homogenous group. And so I think that's one of the hardest things about studying this patient population is everybody's stroke is a little bit different. And so when you look at a registry study and you've got 10,000 patients, you think that you can kind of glaze over these differences. Uh, But yeah, as we'll we'll find, like one finding in a registry study oftentimes does not translate to a randomized control trial. Like that was the exact chance or the uh, outcome with Enchanted One. Where big, big registry studies showed that when you have lower blood pressures after thrombolytic administration or after ischemic stroke, you have less hemorrhagic conversion and maybe better outcomes. They studied that in a randomized fashion, and that was not the case. And so, as we'll talk about momentarily, it was a very similar story here.
0: So, what was the what was the first prospective trial that really looked at um, that really challenged the 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 idea of intensive blood pressure lowering?
1: Yeah, so the first trial that was kind of majorly looking at this was BP Target. And so BP Target was a prospective trial looking at patients who had anterior large vessel occlusions who went for thrombectomy and got Ticky 2 b to Ticky 3 reperfusion, so excellent reperfusion. And they were randomized to either keeping a systolic blood pressure of 100 to 130, so essentially less than 130, or 130 to 185, essentially autoregulation or re- relatively liberal blood pressure control for the first 24 hours after thrombectomy. Uh, and essentially, it was a kind of phase two smaller trial trying to look at whether or not intensive blood pressure uh, control could just reduce the rates of reperfusion injury. So they randomized a pretty good number of patients, about 300 patients. Average blood pressures were not markedly different. So it was about on 128 in the intensive control arm versus 138 in the more liberal control arm. Interestingly, rates of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage, reperfusion injury were actually similar between the two arms and rates of excellent functional outcomes at three months were also similar. And so this trial kind of like you know begged the question of, maybe this isn't the best kind of marker for us to control, but there's still more for us to learn. This is a small study, there's at least some differences in some of the outcomes, so it's worth kind of investigating further. And so Enchanted 2-MT, or mechanical thrombectomy, was the first like real big trial that looked at this. And essentially what they looked at was again, in patients with uh, Ticky 2 b or greater reperfusion, uh, randomizing essentially to patients who had a baseline systolic blood pressure of greater than 140, so suggesting patients who had hypertension that would require an antihypertensive therapy otherwise, were randomized to either a systolic blood pressure of less than 120, which is one of the kind of threshold numbers in the big registry studies that suggested maybe we could improve outcomes by keeping patients this low, to patients with a systolic blood pressure of uh, 140 to 180. So essentially, the differences were less than 120, Versus less than 180 was essentially the two arms. Uh, They included any patient with a large vessel occlusion, not just anterior circulation. uh, And the BP target had to be maintained for 72 hours after thrombectomy. Um, They got a pretty big population. Around 800 patients were randomized. um, And the majority of patients, around 83% of patients got three, So the best reperfusion you can get. And unfortunately, what they found was that when we were driving patients' blood pressure really low to less than 120, that actually caused harm. So the kind of shift in functional outcomes, the odds ratio is one point three seven, suggesting that driving blood pressure is that low is actually hurting patients. Now, there's like a lot of caveats with this study, like many of these studies, it's not one hundred percent perfect. So this is a largely Chinese population. So there's you know demographically that population tends to be affected by more intracranial atherosclerosis as an underlying etiology of their stroke that you know has a relatively high prevalence in the kind of north american and european populations but the asian population tends to have a higher degree of that atherosclero- atherosclerosis intracranially so that may have affected how blood pressure affected their outcomes you know if somebody has really stenotic vessels intracranially you really drive their pressure down it's probably going to create more of a pressure differential and they may have worse perfusion that could have driven this and then the other thing that kind of plagues all of these blood pressure control studies is there was no real control over what meds were used, right? So obviously that's what's most relevant to us and in Enchanted as well as in some of the other studies we'll talk about soon, you know, Urapidil and some of the other therapies that we don't even use at all in the States were the most frequently used agents. And there was really no discussion about whether or not the actual agents themselves may have influenced the outcome. So not super surprisingly patients in the more intense therapy arm got a lot more blood pressure meds. And they didn't really discuss whether or not getting X, Y, or Z medication may have had an impact on the outcome. But the overall takeaway from Enchanted 2 was that driving blood pressure is really low is probably harmful. What it didn't answer is what the right goal is, right? So patients who are between 140 and 180, like where in that range is best, we still have yet to figure out.
0: Well, and you mentioned the, the differences in, in agents. And I'm always fascinated by that. Um, yeah, yeah you mentioned, I mean, hydrolyzing infusions they're doing in some of these, it's nuts, <laughs> but, um, ironically, the, the only study that truly did have like a preferred agent was the optimal BP trial. And, you know, mm-hmm. we covered this, the a rapid reaction one with, with, with Leslie Hamilton in this, but basically, they were looking similar patients to the Enchanted Two, just targeting less than 140 instead of less than 120, and they they stopped their trial early based on those Enchanted Two results. So this is kind of you know the the first trial right that, that you covered the BP target trial, ah, not necessarily harm, right? Not the benefit right. that we thought. Some subgroup benefits. But enchanted two and optimal BP showed harm in multiple areas right. with that lowering. Um, and then the best two, right? Similar story with with the other things. So the our our understanding of blood pressure control afterwards is after these three trials is very different. And I think these will be where I think a lot of us are going to see changes in our post thrombectomy protocols. Frequently, our patients were targeting less than 140 if they had good, if they got good reperfusion after. Um, And I'm not sure that's going to be the case going forward. It'd be hard to argue to continue that based on these results, at least.
1: Yeah, and it's just so hard because like, we know that really low is bad, but we don't know where in the middle is good. And so like one, I think like the results of these studies don't say that less than 140 specifically is wrong, but it also doesn't say that it's right. And so I think, yeah, I think the, the literature is going to be evolving over the next couple of years to try to really pin down what the right number is. And I think the other thing that'll be important is selecting the right patient for intensive blood pressure control at all. And I think there's probably going to be a lot more coming out of like angiographic assessment of what their vessels look like as to how we decide what the actual value is going to be.
0: And I think that's, you know, you make the point of, you know, not all strokes are created equal. And I think those of us not living in the neurocritical care world, sometimes I'll laugh when it feels like I get 20 landmark stroke articles that come out every single year. Right. But it makes sense of what you're saying. And until you're You you're really paying attention to the details, right? There are small differences in inclusion criteria that that completely change the patients that they're looking at the possible benefits that they're seeing. So can we have an agreement that we can still poke fun at it with also understanding that it is important? Can we can we make an agreement there?
1: I think the only way to make any sense of some of these trials to be able to poke fun at it when it's like seven trials that all look at the same population, but except there's one point difference, like it's like, come on, we're just doing our best. (laughs) All
0: right. That actually makes. okay. you heard it. You heard it. Listeners, you you uh, you can you have to respect, but also uh, you can give them a hard time about it. Yes. Um, So. One of the last things I want to ask in the ischemic stroke side of the management before we shift to the hemorrhagic is... um, the we know that the size of the infarct can change some of your other pieces of management. So, does our blood pressure goal change based on how large that infarct is? Kind of meaning like you'll see sometimes like a, a hemispheric or malignant infarct, right? Do, should those have different blood pressure goals than kind of our, our standard is a bad word, but your normal acute ischemic strokes?
1: Yeah, so, so not necessarily. So malignant MCA strokes are oftentimes, you know, admitted to the unit, particularly before we call like a swell watch. So those patients with very large ischemic cores are at very high risk of developing malignant cerebral edema, which can worsen their herniation. They may be candidates for hemicraniectomy and all these kind of advanced therapies. And so the control of blood pressure oftentimes dovetails the other things that we end up doing for these patients but the malignant MCA itself doesn't necessarily mandate a different blood pressure target than other strokes. I think there are some caveats there where, you know, if somebody has a very large territory at risk and not necessarily completed that infarct, that may change our blood pressure management strategies. So there's like some relatively low quality, but kind of convincing data that in patients who have large territories at risk, especially who have critical stenoses of their intracranial vessels, Increasing their blood pressure with pharmacologic therapy might be beneficial. And so there's some, you know, studies or papers from the 90s that actually came out of MGH where patients who had really tight vessels and had a big territory at risk, by increasing their systolic blood pressure, say, from whatever their baseline is to 180, even up to 220, you know, there's a case series of about 30 patients. A third of them had significant improvements in their neurologic exam, with the thought being that you could potentially improve the perfusion to those critical areas at risk kind of nice because it's something that you could do at the bedside or if you have a patient with a big territory at risk, get tight vessels, increase their blood pressure for 30 minutes, see if their exam gets better. And if it does, then you have the answer that they have a blood pressure dependent exam. But if it doesn't, then you also have your answer that blood pressure is not a dial that you can kind of twist there. But broadly speaking, in somebody who has a malignant MCA stroke, the management of their blood pressure is going to follow whatever other therapy they may have gotten, be that a TPA or because large strokes are at risk of hemorrhagic conversion obviously if they end up converting, we're going to be a little bit more aggressive in controlling the blood pressure there.
0: And, The first time you get to see that happen, the change in like, um, like neuro status from like when the blood pressure changes, it's, it's so cool. So if you haven't seen that, if you haven't been at the bedside for it, pop your head in the room the next time that happens, because, um, it is, it, it's a really, it's, it's a really cool thing. That's, that's, it's a cool thing in medicine. That's not gross
1: at the same time. (laughs) Exactly, It's pretty cool when you turn on the norepi or the phenylephrine and they start talking again, right? (laughs) Exactly. That's pretty cool to watch. <laughs> exactly. So
0: let's kind of let's kind of shift into our patients with spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage. And starting off, right, all of our guidelines were trying to use grade criteria, right, and trying to make um the have the best evidence and in use that evidence to inform our guidelines. So if if you're rating the level of evidence for blood pressure management in spontaneous ICH, what grade would you give them?
1: Yeah. I and mean, I think that I pretty much agree with the ICH guidelines here. That the, the level of the data is probably around like a level two, right? And I think even with the publication of Interact 3, which we'll talk about momentarily, I really don't think that that's changed that much. So Interact 3 would say that they're the first level one data for blood pressure management and ICH. But much like we've talked about in ischemic stroke, hemorrhagic stroke, is, there's just so many variables at play in how we think about managing these patients that it's So difficult to design the perfect RCT to fill that level one gap. So I think we have lots of great trials, which can inform our knowledge, but I don't think that it's quite moved past that level two phase quite yet.
0: So it, that makes sense that it's level two at best, because if you've looked at the guidelines, their blood pressure goal is a little vague in the wording. That's probably being kind. So Andy, what actually is our goal for patients that have spontaneous ICH? Yeah,
1: so I I think the guidelines kind of separate this into two different avenues. So the first and actually interestingly stronger recommendation is to limit blood pressure variability, which (laughs) is a fantastic goal that is just not really possible to achieve bedside. I always like when I was reading this, I was chuckling like, asking my nurses, like, can you please titrate the Nycard to a standard deviation of 10 millimeters of mercury? Like, it's just not really a feasible practice thing. But at least conceptually, the agents that we choose can achieve that goal. And so the actual goal that we want to set that, we, you know, put in the order can actually titrate the medication to, I do think Interact 3 helped here in that 140 as a systolic blood pressure goal Probably the best goal for just about everyone. And it really gets back to that not every ICH is created equal, so it's hard to say a universal goal, but at least that's how Interact3 was designed. And so, given the findings, I think that's probably what we should be shooting for in pretty much every patient, with the caveat that lower is not always better. And so, there should be a floor. And the guidelines, as well as interact set 130 as that floor, and I think that's pretty reasonable to really shoot for 140. Try to keep it tightly around there, but definitely don't go too low because you might actually end up uh, causing harm.
0: So, does our presenting blood pressure change that? Because you mentioned in the beginning you've seen blood pressures up to 300. So, yeah, say it's 220, 240, 300. Are we are we keeping that same goal?
1: Yeah. And so this gets into the nuance of management, right? And so I think a lot of people bring up these thresholds, uh, because especially Interact 2 had 220 as an exclusion criteria, or at least patients who were greater than 220 were not included. One caveat, though, in the protocol, they actually allowed medications to be given to those patients who were above 220. If, med- if their blood pressure could get below 220, then they could be enrolled. So it's not necessarily like Interact completely excluded those patient populations that had really, really high blood pressures. And that was seen in Interact-3, where there was not a specific blood pressure parameter. And the maximum baseline systolic in Interact-3 was actually 284, right? So like pretty high. And those patients were still randomized to get all the way down to 140. Now, that being said, there is probably a point where Incredibly aggressive, you know, dropping somebody's blood pressure by 140 uh, millimeters of mercury is kind of aggressive, right? There's probably a point where that may end up causing harm, if not to the brain, to the rest of the body, right? So if you think about hemorrhagic strokes that are believed to be caused by hypertension, are generally caused by long-standing hypertension, right? Like I talked about earlier, it's not that initial systolic of 284 that like caused the artery to rupture. It's Chronically elevated blood pressures that cause lipohyalinosis. Proteins are forced into the vessel walls. The vessel walls get stiff and then they eventually rupture. That rupture then causes a sympathetic cascade that causes the acute blood pressure to go up. But the point being is that the patients who have these hypertensive bleeds are used to higher blood pressures. Every, everything in their body has gotten used to a higher level of blood pressure. And so dropping somebody's blood pressure by, say, over 90 millimeters of mercury, which is what some of the retrospective data has shown, probably the threshold of harm, probably going to cause harm to some of the other organs. So what we saw in a two was like you know, that risk of AKI by driving patients too low. There's at least some retrospective data uh, that shows that 90 millimeters of mercury as like this super hyper acute threshold is probably a bit too much too fast. But ultimately, over at least a couple of hours, most of these patients should still get down to 140 in a reasonable amount of time while not going below the safety threshold of 130. So we definitely know that's where some of the major harm starts to happen.
0: That's a, I'm very glad you pointed out the the biggest cause in these patients is untreated hypertension. And so those patients that come in, right, those are the patients who, um do you uh, do you have any medical conditions no And it's because they haven't seen a doctor yeah. in 30 years right getting their blood yeah. pressure they live in that 180 200s and so it's like it's the same concept of if someone's blood glucose is 400 all the time and you bring them down to yeah. to 150 they're going to feel low just like you the same concept so um mm-hmm. i think that's an important point you you made there so yeah
1: and go ahead yeah and i was just like it's it's interesting because the one thing, because patients are so used to blood pressures that high for so long, a lot of the harms of bringing somebody down really aggressively do seem to be short term, the kind of things that we have to deal with in the ICU. So there's some postdoc analyses of ATTACH2 that showed that people who had baseline blood pressures like over 220, while those patients were more likely to kind of experience some of the end organ dysfunction of lowering their blood pressures to, you know, 120 in the case of ATTACH2, that actually didn't, impact their long-term outcomes. So that's like at least one glimmer of hope is that if you do drop somebody's blood pressure and they develop an AKI, while AKI itself portends worse outcomes overall, uh, from a neurologic perspective, that aggressive lowering uh, in somebody who has really high baseline blood pressures doesn't seem to be a major driver of whether or not their functional outcomes change.
0: That is a great piece of information to pass along. I love that. Um, So... Friends of the pod listening know I like ranking things. It's just in my blood. So there's been a few uh, blood pressure trials in ICH. So I, I tasked Andy with picking a Mount Rushmore of trials. So for those who don't know, there are four of our beloved presidents on the side of a mountain in South Dakota. So, Andy, what would your... If you're doing a Mount Rushmore of trials at blood pressure control and ICH, what would the four be? Now you. Now for the record, I'm. I'll put in my what mine was afterwards. But he, I, I kind of had a list, and um, Andy saw that, and I, I'm. I'm looking at it. It differs a little bit. So, Andy, what's your four trials?
1: Yeah, so I think obviously it's going to be interact two and attach two, right? Those are going to be the the heavy hitters, the one that we all base our. Uh, a lot of our recommendations on. But the third one that may have surprised you is the patient level analysis of those two trials together, which maybe is cheating, but I do think it's important, right? So there is a, a nice, really well done postdoc analysis published in Lancet in 2019, where they pooled the data from both interact Two and attach Two, And some of the analyses from that particular trial are actually what ended up driving the recommendation to limit variability in the guidelines. So if anything, that paper actually probably told us a little bit more about blood pressure control and ICH than each of the individual trials did on their own. And so I find that paper fascinating because they really break down some of the trends and how aggressive you can be, what the variability was, what the actual temporal relationship with blood pressure and outcomes are. And so the Mulali 2019 paper is my, it doesn't have a fancy name, which is so sad, but <laughs> <laughs> Interact attached 2 combined or something along those lines. That's going to be my number three. And then obviously now that we have Interact 3, that's going to have to be number four. I think that's the one of the largest, most rigorous and kind of most interesting study to date in ICH that is i think gonna be dissected and talked about for a long time
0: you lived up to your reputation so much there by including a patient level analysis as one of your four (laughs)
1: landmark trials
0: (laughs) so so for the listeners the the interact trial is what i chose which which felt like a cop-out because it isn't like uh it's it, when you compare to interact to attached to an interact three, it's not the best trial, but it was, it, you know, it's the one that I look at. So I'm glad that um, we were able to get some true patient level data included in the, in the Mount Rushmore there. So we're talking about, um, like we ha we actually have blood pressure goals, right? And we talked about the, the kind of before the recent trials in thrombectomy, the guidelines are very loose and vague, right? Because there wasn't great data. So since we have actual goals in our ICH patients, I'm assuming that all of these trials just hit it out of the park, like positive effect, tighter blood pressure control is
1: the best, right? That's what these trials showed, right? Uh, So everybody might assume, right? (laughs) And I think that it really depends on how you define a positive trial when you look at these studies. And I think, you know, I think that wait, wait, a before, lot of how people- do wait,
0: how do you define it?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think that it depends on the outcome that you're most interested in, right? And so, and like, a lot of people will say that Interact-2 and Attached-2 were negative trials. Their primary outcome were, they did not reach the threshold for statistical significance, therefore, it is a negative trial. And I think that's a very black and white way of interpreting trials, very reasonable It's how the trials were designed. But I think that we use these studies to assess whether or not the interventions that we do at the bedside are meaningful for patients, right? Whether or not the things that we do will help patients live better lives after their ICU admission. Um, And unfortunately, the way that interact to and attach to were designed was not designed in a way to maximally look at that lens. What I mean by that is that, you know, both trials were powered to detect the proportion of patients who had a quote-unquote good outcome or an excellent functional outcome. And so they took the modified Rankin scale, you know, which is zero to six, uh, you know, zero being excellent, six being uh, uh, mortality, and they just chopped it in half, right? So Interact 2 was MRS of zero to two, Attached 2 was zero to three, and it was just, you were either good or bad. Uh, And unfortunately, that just like misses so much of the nuance and the intention of what the modified Rankin scale is where the modified Rankin scale is ordinal for a reason, because there are grades to how well or how poorly a patient can do after an ICH. And simply looking at buckets of good and bad just misses some of the power of detecting how the interventions we implement affect patient outcomes. And so I find Interact 2 to be a positive trial. The reason being is, you know, my understanding is that they're essentially mandated by regulatory bodies to have that kind of binary dichotomous outcome as their primary endpoint. But when they looked at the shift in modified Rankin scale by intensive blood pressure, there was a shift towards better outcomes. And I think in in my mind, that's a lot more meaningful than whether or not somebody had an MRS of zero to two or an MRS of three to six, because what dichotomizing that outcome does is you miss somebody who may have moved from an MRS of four to an MRS of three, which is like a very meaningful change Uh, and not including that ordinal shift, I think is misses some of the potential power of those interventions. But the bottom line is that the data are not maybe quite as strong as a lot of people might think they are given the strength of how much we talk about blood pressure control and ICH. But putting everything together, I think generally speaking we've found that intensive blood pressure control tends to lead to a more favorable kind of spread of the proportion of modified rank and scale. Meaning that patients who had intensive blood pressure control tend to do, to do better than they would have if they hadn't had intensive blood pressure control. That doesn't necessarily mean that all patients with intensive blood pressure control are going to have an MRS of zero, one, or two. Uh, and so while we're like probably still going to hem and haw about the exact number for more years to come, I think broadly speaking, we've recognized that blood pressure control is one of the potential modifiable things that we have in intracerebral hemorrhage.
0: That's a that's a really good discussion on MRS scores because I think a lot of us our knowledge of it is exclusively from discussion into the trials right and what they're doing and and thinking that so I, that's a um that was perfect now when we're the two big studies right you kind of let us know about the what was included in that patient level analysis and let's take interact three out we'll we'll get back to that in just a second with that unique difference. Walk us through because the, the attached to interact two trials right they're they're similar but they're different in a sense right yep. so so what are what are some of the biggest differentiators in your mind in kind of differences and why why those trials are the same but so different in terms of outcomes and interpretation for us?
1: Yeah, so there are a couple of different methodological differences between the two studies, in particular of what patients they ended up enrolling. So interact two, which is the first one that came out, um, as we've talked about only included patients who had blood pressures up to 220. At uh, enrollment, they looked at patients within six hours of symptom onset. Um, Their kind of primary outcome was excellent functional outcomes as defined as MRS of zero to two. Uh, And only 48% of the patients in RAC2 had blood pressures over 180. So like, you know, good number, but not as many as we might expect with those really, really high systolic blood pressures. Attached two kind of narrowed that window a little bit. So they looked at patients within four and a half hours of symptom onset, they didn't necessarily have a systolic blood pressure exclusion criteria, so more patients had those systolics in the extremes. Their uh, functional outcome uh, was a zero to three, so a little bit wider in terms of a good functional outcome. Uh, and they tried to get patients under control a little bit faster. And I think the one thing that's relevant to pharmacists is Interact Two allowed studies to use whatever antihypertensive they had available, and Attach Two mandated the use of nicardipine. So there's at least a little bit of homogeneity in what therapy was used, which I think is particularly helpful for us to assess whether or not the treatment that was actually implemented um, had a major outcome. But at the bottom line, like they included relatively not super sick ICH patients with relatively elevated blood pressures. And ultimately what ended up happening was Interact 2 ended up being a study that compared getting patients to a blood pressure of about 150 to 160 to a blood pressure of about 140, and attached to compared patients who got blood pressures of about 140 to about 110 to 120. And so the actual achieved blood pressures obviously were different because that was the intention of the study, uh, which is often some of the criticisms of the two trials is the separation in the blood pressure curves between the two trials really was not that big. And whether or not the magnitude of the difference in systolic blood pressures was even large enough to detect a change in outcomes is a major criticism of both studies.
0: So... Bringing, bringing in the most recent study, the Interact 3, into the discussion now, we're not going to we spend a whole hour diving into that. And if you haven't listened, um, Keaton, Keaton Smatana and Todd Miano, join me. You should definitely listen to it. But my question for you is thinking about, right, the 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 takeaway from that study, right, or or one of the takeaways that you'll read is that bundled care and ICH improves outcomes. That's the that's the headline story of that, right? Um, the headline from that. I think mm-hmm. when you dive in, I think it's more complicated than that. We're not going to get into that, oh, yeah. but do you think that will interact three beta ICH? What the Rivers early goal directed therapy was to sepsis, right? With this bundled care, because we knew the limitations with the Rivers study. Right. And we've kind of pieced together that, but but we did that for fifteen years. Do you see do you see that same thing happening here?
1: I, I think that there's definitely a great correlation between those two findings, right? So I don't think it's too controversial to say that Rivers was positive, less because the uh, you know, complicated algorithm and the Edward Catheters and using all these things was the thing to do for early goal directed therapy. But more so because back when Rivers was published, you know, somebody who is septic in the ED, they're like, well, we'll start antibiotics and hope for the best. And it turned out that when an intensivist was at the bedside managing hemodynamics, being attentive to the patient, really focusing and optimizing every single variable they possibly could, like, surprise, surprise, the patients did better. And once we realized that patients with sepsis had the capacity to do really well, if we were really intent on managing everything that we possibly could, that's where standard of care ended up moving to. And so when you look at the major EGDT trials that didn't find major differences between the strict protocol versus standard of care, it's because standard of care changed because of Rivers. And so I think Interact-3 is very similar, where you know, Interact-3, in terms of its external generalizability, it's really hard to extrapolate the exact findings to every hospital everywhere, because what this Interact-3 was specifically designed to do was find hospitals in low- and middle-income countries who did not have specific protocols, policies, bundles of care to optimize the outcomes of ICH. And they took those hospitals and they educated them and did essentially continuous quality improvement on these are the parameters that might be able to improve outcomes in ICH. If you control blood pressure really tightly, if you have great glucose control, if you avoid fever, if you reverse anticoagulation and really focus on optimizing each of those variables, let's see if that bundle improves care. And surprise, surprise, it does. And I think it's hard to say whether or not each of those individual goals are what improved the outcomes, or looking at the system of care where those patients are going, improving everyone who's involved in taking care of those patients in focusing on incremental improvements in patient care. I think that's really what ultimately drove this to be a positive trial is yeah, that bundle of really intense, protocolized, kind of code stroke, code ICH level care. Is probably the major driver of the improvement in functional outcomes, rather than the exact, you know, glucose attainment or systolic blood pressure attainment that the study kind of protocol set out to achieve.
0: Okay, I got a bone to pick with you. You just said code ICH, <laughs> so are you a code ICH person and not an ABC ICH person? Uh, you know, I have, I've
1: not. Can I? ascribed to any particular acronym quite yet whatever whatever the flashiest one is i guess i'm i'm on the fan of uh, but yeah i think that like we we probably do need to do a little bit of marketing on how we can best kind of optimize the uh, the recognition of, <laughs> of what the best bundle is i'm on record that
0: pharmacy to dose in- endorses the abcich so the <laughs> but but there are but people feel strongly other ways so so we shall see now, this was part one of blood pressure control in neurologic emergencies. So uh, part two will come out early next week. Be on the lookout. Um a huge thank you to uh, Andy Webb, special guest. Be sure to follow him on Twitter at AJW And then get in touch with me, uh, Twitter or Instagram at pharmacy to dose, to dose, or via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com or our website. PharmacyToDose.com. The reference list with awesome articles and things that were discussed and more is featured in the podcast episode description as well as the website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters and this is Pharmacy To Dose, the critical care podcast. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ, for easy access to research personalized for you calculate for over 500 easy to use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day try them today at qxmd.com/apps again that is
1: qxmd.com/apps The Critical Care PRN
0: optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional health care services, including pharmaceutical advice. The content and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the content and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal health care professional. Users user patients should not ignore delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACP or the critical care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.